Hello, hello. It's no secret that writing is tough stuff. Placing thousands upon thousands of words on paper with such clarity and momentum so as to whisk away readers to unimaginable places can feel like an insurmountable task. Welcome to episode 9 of Bleeding Ink, a show that dives into the minds of remarkable writers who have bested the written word, and through their example, will help you achieve literary success. Tune in every other week on iTunes or Stitcher. And rating the show on iTunes is a great way to say thanks. It'll take you 30 seconds tops, and it means a lot. You can also visit www.bleedingink.fm where you can sign up for giveaways and my mailing list that dishes out tools, tips, and updates for all your author needs. And as always, thanks for listening. There is nothing to writing. All you do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed and bleed and bleed. What's this? Bleeding Ink, a podcast for indie authors with J.S. Leonard. Josh Burnoff has been a professional writer since 1982. He's co-authored three books on business strategy, including Groundswell, which was a bestseller. And he's passionate about clear, brief, fascinating communication. Josh's blog, withoutbullshit.com, feeds a cool million readers a year. His message is simple. Reduce, reduce some more, and here's how. By judging his readership numbers and the enthusiasm in which his readers receive his content, I am confident that reduction is an antidote to the overwhelmingly complex world we meet daily. Josh is the doctor, and he's got the cure. In my first reading of Strunk and White's Canonical Elements of Style, William Strunk's Rule 17 presented to me a lifetime challenge. Omit needless words. Its impact redirected my writing and, in one of those, hey, this applies to other things moments, it redirected my life. A greater tenet I have yet to discover, for we need not limit omitting to only our words, but to all aspects of our lives. Minimal wins. It's zen, man. Burnoff has made it his life's mission to eradicate gloppy bullshit from corporate and political interactions in which bullshit is stacked so high it's difficult to tell where the mouths begin and the rubbish ends. I admire him. As the noise around us grows, we must learn to become the signal, crisp, clean, and laser-like. And in that act, there is no room for wishy-washiness or platitudes. Let Joss teach you to take your message and pierce through the heart of today's deafening racket. Be heard. Writing Without Bullshit is Josh's upcoming book and is slated for release in September 2016 through Harper Business. Here's Josh, and I hope you enjoy it. So Josh, I myself have been trying to abolish bullshit from my writing for far less time than you, I imagine, and and I've probably been far less successful too. But I just want to thank you for making this your MO, and you can consider me a fan right now. And Josh, Josh Burnoff, he's my guest today. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, uh, thanks so much for thinking of me. And when uh, I left my last job after 20 years and asked myself, what was I going to dedicate the rest of my career to? (laughs) I just thought if I start working on the problem of identifying bullshit, helping people to avoid it and helping people to identify it, then I'll never run out of material. You're set for life. Yeah, that is a a gold pot right there. (laughs) Um, Excuse me. So... 
Josh, for people who don't know you, what what's your story? What's what's where'd you where'd you get into this stuff? Like where'd you start? Well, I've been a writer uh, professionally for about thirty five years. Um, mm-hmm. I actually was trained as a mathematician, which is an area where uh, the difference between the truth and things that are false is a lot easier to tell. Um, but I got my first job actually doing technical writing about uh, about mathematical topics for software companies. Uh-huh. And I've been writing ever since. Uh, my most recent position was 20 years at Forrester Research, which is a company that has to make very clear pronouncements about technology and what you should do about it. And it's really there that that I got trained to uh, to be as direct and clear as possible. And yeah. that's where the principles that I'm talking about come from. So when you were uh, working at Forrester, like what, what was your typical, what's your typical day look like? Well, so what, where'd you start as at Forrester? I, I started, <laughs> so just give you an idea of how far back it goes. I started at Forrester as their CD-ROM expert. Oh. Uh, and after a little while, my boss <laughs> said, you know, no one cares about CD-ROM anymore. You're going to start working on this internet stuff. And I said, don't make me do that. I don't know anything about internet. Why would I have to work on that? Boy, that was the stupidest thing I he, ever did. He was all, he, we think this internet thing might be big. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, we the, think it might be going places. Uh, I spent 10 years at Forrester as their expert on television technology, actually. And in that context, I wrote about high-definition television, uh, digital video recorders, video on demand, streaming. Um, and, you know, basically, you say, what is your day like? Um, all of the people who are innovating in that space would would brief us and tell us what they were working on. I got to talk to big companies like NBC and uh, and Cox and Comcast about mm. what their plans were. And then you basically, your job is to try and make a projection about what's going to happen in the next five years and tell those, those business people what to do about it in the form of research reports. And those research reports were 12 or 15 pages long and had to be really packed with value because people paid a lot of money for them. Hmm. Interesting. So when do you, so you obviously, did you use any of your math background to, to come up with those reports or? Uh, yes. Well, uh, a certain amount of that is related to projections. So if you're trying hmm. to determine how many people in the United States will be streaming in five years versus now, you have to have a pretty good understanding of uh, how populations and demographics work. Also at Forrester, um, uh, in my second year there, I started to work on a project that became known as Technographics. So this was our first consumer surveys where we asked basically uh, literally hundreds of thousands of people questions about what technologies they used and what they were planning on using and then uh, analyzed that data for for the purpose of companies. And that that certainly involves a lot of mathematics to be able to understand that, yes, there may be 116 people uh, in our sample who uh, undertake some strange uh, activity, but that's not a significant sample and you really can't draw any conclusions from those 116 people. Right, yeah. So it sounds to me like you were developing this, this very pre- precise bullshit detector from the very beginning, like you, the, the journey 
was this. You got your math degree. That got, that got your logic, your, your analyzation. And then you started getting into the English side of things by actually having to write reports. Is Am, am I on the right path here? Is that where you started to kind of um, build your ability to analyze language and understand when it was being deceptive? Yes, very much so. I mean, we were very, it would be typical for a report at Forrester to go through 12 or 15 drafts before people saw it. And the purpose of the editor, right? Editor is a very broad term, but the purpose of the editor specifically at Forrester was to keep hammering on that until it included only things that were interesting and significant. In fact, uh, one of my favorite editors there, a guy named Bill Bluestein, who, Mm -hmm. uh, 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 really was a towering figure there. He actually had an abbreviation he would write in the margin, which was MP. M- MP stood for meaningless platitude. <laughs> so if you're if you put in your report something like you should make sure to hire smart people, he'd cross it out and write MP. And it's like, yeah. what? You that's good advice. What you want people to know not to hire dumb people, right? Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so that kind of relentless focus on only things that were significant made a big difference to me. And now as I go out and I look at the emails that people send, the uh the stuff that they publish in the in the news, the uh the public relations pitches that I get, all of this business writing is rife with qualifiers and meaningless mm. platitudes jargon and passive voice and all manner of evasion of actually saying something yeah. and i i'm sick of it not only that i believe uh and this is i think really my my most important message is that if you learn how to express yourself in a clear and simple and direct way you will stand out so well from that background of bullshit that people be uh basically saying Ah, oh, she's really smart. I got to pay attention to what she's saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So did you run across like, so I know surveys can be tweaked to like get the, you know, to sort of to, to uh, go towards a specific goal that the surveyor may want. Um, did you see that a lot? Like not, not you per se doing it, but seeing it in other places. Oh, we see that all of the time. And I think yeah. you have to be very skeptical whenever you see anything statistical published in print. Yeah. Uh, the uh, at Forrester, we people counted on the conclusions we came to. They could not be skewed in any way. Mm-hmm. So if you were optimistic about something, you had to make sure that that optimism didn't get into the questions because we weren't trying to persuade people of anything. We were trying to actually find the truth. But if you look at polls right now, for example, uh, the the polls have absolutely nothing to do with who's going to win the election coming up. The presidential election. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it, this, there's a very small number of people that they're drawing the conclusions from. There's a bias that can't be eliminated, which is that the only people they can survey are people who are willing to take a survey. Um, and uh, naturally, the real conclusion that they ought to reach from these surveys is that most people aren't paying attention and they're ignorant. Right. Which is, at this point in the election, not indictment of the American population, that's an indictment of the pollsters who are basically taking what ignorant people are saying, people who aren't paying attention, and then projecting it out. Mm-hmm. So so uh, that's a great example of, you know, people. The, you'll read stuff that says, oh, well, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton's up two points related to, uh, compared to, to uh, Bernie Sanders in New Hampshire. 
Mm-hmm. That's a completely meaningless statement, yeah. given the amount of uh, the number of people that they're surveying. It it has no significance whatsoever. Well, what do you think is the intent behind a survey like that? I mean, are they trying to maybe s- s- sway people towards a, a candidate or, or like what? No, just- no, it's just to sell newspapers. It's just to uh, get clicks. You know, uh, uh, Gallup got out of the week by week polling business recently because someone there with integrity realized that it didn't actually mean anything and they didn't want to have their name associated with it. Yeah. I wonder though, like if that ever influences people's decisions, right? So say Hillary bumps up 12 points and that's the story, right? And then suddenly everyone's like, well, she's obviously going to win. So I'm going to go with her anyways. But what if that was, you know, false in some way? I mean, that would, that would be, you know, the the survey actually becoming part of the observation. (laughs) Well, there's one candidate who talks about polls. Mm-hmm. None of the other candidates talk about polls. Uh, Hillary Clinton doesn't talk about them. Uh, Bernie Sanders doesn't talk about them. None of the Republicans talk about them with the exception of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And Donald Trump behaves as if increases in the numbers he's getting in the polls mean something because at this point, that's he, he has to convince people that he's a viable mm. candidate despite the wacko things that he's saying. And that's how he... <laughs> He's like, see, I'm actually reaching people. And a more yeah. accurate statement would be, see, the kind of people who answer polls that I can, if I can get them excited, yeah, I can actually uh, um, influence the polls, which doesn't have anything to do with what happens in an election. Okay, I want to definitely talk more about Donald Trump a yeah. little bit later. We're gonna, I think we're gonna, we're gonna start looking at some of the things he's saying. But okay, so when did you leave Forrester? I, I left Forrester in March of 2015, six, uh, I guess it's oh. about eight months ago. That's recent. Wow. So this is like a big deal. It's this turning point in your life, huh? Uh, well, after 20 years to go off on my own, yes. Uh, I, <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote three nonfiction books, all with co-authors at Forrester Research. One on uh, social media called Groundswell was a bestseller, sold over 140,000 copies. Wow. This recent one was on mobile technology. But... And if I had wanted to continue to analyze the technology world, I'd still be there. But I just mm-hmm. thought it's time for me to uh, write a book without a co-author about things that I'm passionate about. Um, and uh, that really is you know, the, what I've found in the eight months that I've been blogging since leaving there is that there is a definite passion among a lot of people to uh, get to identify bullshit and learn how to write in a more yeah. positive way. I think I first learned of that bitter scent <laughs> uh, through reading Strunk and White. Like that, that, like he was kind of the first guy, or that was the first book that said, you know, there's so much superfluous, you know, junk in, in writing. Um, and, you know, you just need to pare it back. Every word should tell. And, you know, that's omitting unnecessary words, all these different rules. Yeah. And, and that, that really changed my entire approach to writing um now when earlier on in your career like who who influenced you uh did you have any books that were very that that sort of stood out as pointed moments where it changed you well i think that strunk and white certainly made an impression on me um i'll just give you a little context on that um so i i was looking recently at a book by william zinser yeah i love uh, on writing well Mm. And the uh, the the hype on the back says the natural successor to Strunk and White, and uh, now I have uh, uh, Stephen Pinker's book, The Sense of Style, 
right? Uh, mm-hmm. Pinker has written The Strunk and White for a New Century. So Strunk and White appears to be what you reference in these contexts. And yet we're here uh, at a point where uh, we read almost everything on a screen where it's much harder to concentrate. Mm-hmm. There's a huge demand for people to create content. There's, there's just because people are reading all of the time. At the same time, there's very little editing that goes on. So mm-hmm. we have worse prose than we had in the time of Strunk and White. Uh, and we have more of it. Mm. And we have, uh, we're reading it in places that make it harder to concentrate. So I think this problem has gotten much worse. Strunk and White was intended for professional writers. Yeah. My point is that every person out there now who is operating in an office is a professional writer. You are writing sure. emails, you're writing blog posts, you're writing press releases, you're writing uh, uh, reports, whatever it happens to be. Uh, and people don't get any sort of training in how to do that in a way that's actually efficient for the reader. Uh, Strunk and White didn't go far enough and it assumed that the person reading it wanted to be a writer. Now every bozo out there is creating content that's filling up all of our inboxes. How didn't, how didn't it go far enough? How didn't it go far enough? Well, I, if you learn what it said in Strunk and White, then you could become a good author. Uh, and remember, White was the editor of The New Yorker. So the idea is that you would write articles that would be in The New Yorker, which is, you know, one one thousandth of one percent of the population is ever capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that has to change now is what I would call to strip everything down to its most simple and direct form and front load it. So when you're reading an email or when you're reading an article or a blog post, it needs to get to the point in the first two or three sentences or you'll give up on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you are competing with everything else that people are posting on Facebook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a lot yeah. of stuff out there. Lots of noise. Um, so, whereas, you know, the thing that drives me most nuts from ordinary people uh, who are communicating is that you get the email and it says, well, I was thinking here and this thing came up and then there was this, this other thing and now as a result of that, and you're like, get to the freaking point already. Yeah, yeah. Um, th- that really should say, we have a decision to make. I saw this, therefore we have to do this. and then And then you go and support it but unless people get right to the point right away, they're just not going to be able to compete uh, for the uh, the limited amounts of attention that readers have. Yeah. Now I'm going to throw a question at you, and it's going to sound a little doom and gloomy, but yeah. uh, has Orwell influenced you at all when approaching this sort of subject matter? Well, it's interesting. I went back and I looked at uh, Orwell's piece called Politics and the mm-hmm. English Language. Mm-hmm. And... One of the things it says in there is to avoid passive voice, but two thirds of that article is written in the passive voice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so I think that Orwell definitely uh, identified how politicians are uh, perverting language to, to influence people, but uh, he didn't have the internet <laughs> to talk yeah. about. And I, uh, when you take, something that Donald Trump says or Ben Carson says uh, or uh, any of these guys and then 
put it through the echo chamber that is media skewed to the left and media skewed to the right, what you end up with has such a little little uh, connection with the truth that, you know, it's just, it's a pretty damning uh, statement about the way that we make decisions here in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Getting a little new speaky. I want to get into those mechanics, actually. I want to, I want to get into, not just now, in a little bit, I want to get into like, you know, the qualifiers, the meaningless phrases, uh, passive voice. I think passive voice is uh, a, a highly misunderstood, um, you know, mechanic that, that I, that I kind of want to dive into. But um, I want to know about your, your, the books that you've written. So Groundswell, what, what do you think led to that best-selling status? I can tell you exactly what that was, and this is only in retrospect. So uh, <laughs> let me just sort of tell you what I thought I knew, and then I'll tell you what I actually knew. This is the best. Um, I want to hear it. <laughs> so um, so my co-author Charlene and I uh, wrote this book and tried to get as many case studies as we could of how companies in uh, at the time that we wrote it, which was in 2007, were actually using social media effectively. Um, and at that time, social media was starting to catch on, but most companies weren't using it. Mm-hmm. So I think it was a very well-written and interesting book. Um, it certainly had a lot of stories about people and what they were doing, um, a lot of principles and frameworks, and we published that, and then it became a bestseller. And mm-hmm. I thought, oh, I know how to write a bestseller. Ah. And, <laughs> and uh, the truth is that... I. Uh, a poorly written book is probably not going to be successful, but a well-written book, that's only one of a whole bunch of things that you need to have. And one of the other main things that you need is timing. Yeah. So our book, I mean, it came out from Harvard Business Press, so it, it had a certain amount of prestige associated with it. Uh-huh. And it came out right at the moment that lots of executives in corporate America were saying, oh, this Facebook thing looks important. <laughs> What can we? What, what should we do about this? Is there anything mm-hmm. we can do? And there's all this screaming and shouting. And then they looked at Groundswell and they're like, "Oh, someone's actually talking sense. Wow, we have actual real examples in here. Oh, there's actual statistics in here. All right, we got to do this." And that I think generated a lot of word of mouth and caused it to spread very broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to do that uh, two more times with my own books and two more times with books by other people at Forrester that I edited. Um, and, uh, really to hit that timing exactly right with the right book is very hard to do. And even in the case of the most recent book that I did called the mobile mind shift, which is about mobile technology, I think the timing was pretty good for that, mm-hmm. but it's just really hard to, to get to that moment where people say, ah, this is exactly what I need to know about this topic. Right. Did, did the, uh, mobile mind shift, did it get the, did it see the same kind of sales as groundswell? No, definitely mm. not. Mm. And it's interesting. So we, uh, <laughs> we didn't use a traditional publishing model for that. We actually mm. pub- published it uh, with Greenleaf Book Group, which is a, a, a publishing services company. It's not a vanity press. They have distribution and they do things in a very I've heard professional of it way. Then, yes. Yeah. Uh, but um, there is a certain amount of uh, sort of prestige that you get from coming out from Harvard Business Press or Harper Business, which is my new publisher. Um, and that book, you know, the, the on the spine, it said Groundswell Press because that was what we made up. Uh, it accomplished its goals for the company, which was to put Forrester on the map as far as, as 
recommendations, and my co-authors there at Forrester are continuing to to talk about it. Um, but it didn't didn't become a bestseller. Mm. Oh, that's the way it goes. So outside of writing well and timing, what else do you think attributes to, to bestselling status? I, well, one thing I learned a lot about was the launch. Launch, uh, yes. Yeah, and um, we used techniques to launch Groundswell, which nobody had used before. Uh, Charlene, my co-author, had a lot of bloggers that she was connected with. We connected with them directly, uh, got them to review the book. Um, we we used Twitter to promote it, which was very new at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, this is it 2007? Yes. Well, it yeah. was published in 2008. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, okay. and um, I, you know, this was when you're saying, I tweeted something, people would look at you like, what are you talking about? Tweeting yeah. something? Yeah. Um, and everyone and, only followed like four people, so they yeah. actually read the tweets. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I, since then, uh, I have learned about and used a whole bunch of uh, social media techniques to launch books. Uh, for uh, for the uh, the second book I did, we, we had an Amazon Readers uh, Club where we actually got people sent them free advanced copies of the book in exchange for having them publish uh, reviews on Amazon. Yeah. And uh, I, it's very interesting now. I left Forrester. I had, I had all my contacts and so on there. I had to leave that all behind. But at this point, my main assets in terms of promotion for the new book will be uh, my very active collection of Facebook friends, mm-hmm. uh, the 20,000 Twitter followers I have, and my blog, which is now... Uh, on a track to close the year with over a million views. Wow. Um, uh, and that's basically you got to gather your fans up and then mobilize them to talk about the book. And anyone who thinks that publishers are going to do the publicity for you, that's not how it works anymore. Right. You got to no, do it yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I always encourage authors. I just, I just actually, uh, interviewed Tim Grawl recently. And, uh, you know, he's all about building the mailing list. It's all about the mailing list. Everything comes down to it. And, that, and, and, you know, no matter, no matter the way, you, no matter how you spin it, creatives today are, have become entrepreneurs and you need to have that base to, to market to, you know what I mean? Yeah. I want to challenge that a little bit. I mean, okay. I, if you talk to a dozen successful authors, they will each tell you there's only one way that you can publicize yourself correctly, mm-hmm. and then they'll give you 12 different answers. Um, so the, the mailing list, that is an absolutely a terrific way to do things. Um, I have 2,000 subscribers on, on the blog that I've accumulated, uh, but it's not that easy to bump that up. And I, I have taken a stand that I don't want to pop stuff up in front of people when they arrive at the blog and annoy them because mm-hmm. you get people who aren't really your fans; they're just trying to make the the uh, pop up go away. Mm-hmm. The the uh, so for me, it's the blog. For other people, it might be a million Twitter followers, or it might be uh, you know a hundred thousand people that they've managed to get to be their fans on Facebook, or it might even be Pinterest that is where their people collect. You need some way to get that collection of people to connect with you. Mm-hmm. Um, you need a way to basically show them uh, what you're doing and then have them share 
what what you're talking about because they love it but what what sort of functionality or what uh what format you use for that is going to be dependent on where your fans are i'm going to throw a challenge back yeah. at you yeah. okay. <laughs> i actually i'd like to interview you again after you've launched your book i want to know i want you to go and analyze all the various channels that you that you tried to market through and i want to see what had the best conversion that's that. I think that'd be the good way to answer this. Now, I I do agree though. I do agree that certain works of art, different types of creative, you know, endeavors will will be more uh, attractive to various channels, right? So mm-hmm. Pinterest, obviously, your visual artist, Pinterest is great, yeah. or Dribble or whatever. Um, but you know, for for nonfiction, a mailing list, uh, you know, blog, excellent, excellent uh, outlets mm-hmm. for outreach. Wow. Um, it, so we'll we'll see. We'll see. When, yeah, when's this- your book? When's the book publishing? The book is publishing in September. Okay. Um, I, I, uh, it might interest the people listening to this to hear about, you know, what happened. It was like uh, three months into my blogging. I blog every weekday now. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I'm my, amazed at your output, by the way. Well, it's a phenomenal I, blog. Uh, thanks so much for yeah. saying that. Uh, and I, so every day I have to come up with something, which is sometimes challenging. And, <laughs> And one day I was like, okay, well, my friend Jeremiah said I should put all my writing advice into one short post. So that's what I can do today. And I'll see if I can finish that in time to get it out in the morning. And I mm-hmm. I flung it up there. And at the last minute, I said, oh, well, let me make a little graphic, which is like a little chart of the 10 tips, 10 writing tips, and then why you uh, why you don't do them right and why you should do them. Mm-hmm. That that post is now uh, above half a million views. Wow! So i I would love to tell you that I set out to create a viral blog post and it took off. Yep. But the fact is, it's a question of getting up to bat every single weekday. Yeah. Some days you're going to hit a little dribbler back to the mound. Some days you're going to hit a solid double. And every once in a while, it goes soaring over the whole stadium, and you're mm-hmm. just sitting there in awe. I so. The, the, you know, that, that post now is the number two, uh, result. If you search writing tips on Google. Wow. Um, and see that all comes from creating useful content for people. That's easy to share. The fact Mm -hmm. that that graphic was in there, which I just sort of tossed in at the last minute made a huge difference to its ability to spread. Uh, and I mean, it's weird. It's, it's sort of subsided to two or 300 views a day. And then in the last two weeks, it's had another surge of which about 20% is coming from the Philippines. Yep. Now I'd love to tell you, I know what's going on here, but <laughs> what I can tell you is that if you create useful content that people want to share, and if you have enough channels to be able to promote that content um, to your fans, then it will, if you're lucky, take off. Yeah, absolutely. But, but it can't be promotional. It has to be here. I'd like to actually help you with some useful stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a, a common sentiment across, you know, a, a lot of these successful online marketers. I, I don't want really to like call them marketers because, you know, like Seth Godin, for instance, you know, it's it's all about creating uh, extremely sticky and, and useful content. Um, Tim Grohl calls it being relentlessly helpful. And mm-hmm. um, I, I couldn't agree more. Plus, at the end of the day, you know, most creatives, I think, aren't, 
marketing types. Now I'm not, I'm not shitting on marketing at all. I think marketing is beautiful, but most people get an icky feeling when they hear that word. Right. And really it's not that icky of a word. It's just, you know, getting people who didn't know who you were to be, to know who you are, you know, mm-hmm. were, and doing it through useful content helps them. So, you know, done deal. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I want to I want to start talking bullshit. I want to start talking. I want to get to Donald Trump, and I want to actually reference a book. I've been reading a book called Vex Hex Smash and Smooch by Constance Hale. Have you heard of her, Constance? I uh, know this is that sounds interesting, but I've never heard of it before. Okay. The, the, this book is specifically about how to activate your language to the active voice and using verbs and and all these things. And it's it's a really great book on that aspect. Her other books in and syntax is phenomenal. It's more of like a it's more of like a on writing well. But but anyways. One of the things she goes into with the passive voice is, you know, she talks about politicians and when in the Nixon campaign, the phrase mistakes were made. <laughs> yes. Became, came to be. And, um, you know, that, that bit of passivity, right? That mistakes were made. Well, who made them? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I think that's what we're talking about here when we talk about the passive voice. There's no clear, like, antecedent, right? There's no clear doer. And um, so let, let, let's let's launch into this, like, Go ahead and explain to me in your own words, like what, what pa- being passive means. Well, it's exactly that. And I'm my, there is a, a, a dictionary definition of the passive voice. Uh, the simplest test people can have is to look at a sentence and see if you can add the words by zombies after the verb. So, <laughs> you know, mistakes were made. Is that passive? Well, let's see who made them. Mistakes were made by zombies. Ah, see, yeah. that's passive voice. Whereas the active voice would be, Oh, the campaign made mistakes. Okay, now we know who to blame. Right. Um, I did an analysis, for example, of the uh, the Boston. Uh, uh, there was a report on the finances of the Boston Olympics pitch, which mm-hmm. ended up falling flat. But if you looked at that, there was all this stuff about uh, this area can be developed and mm-hmm. money can be raised this way, and you just had this. You have this uneasy feeling reading it, like this. All this stuff is supposed to be happening, and I don't know who's doing what. Mm-hmm. When you start to ask the question, it's like you know taxes can be raised. Oh well, wait a minute. Well, now we're actually going to have to have legislatures say that they want to. Oh, I don't know if that's going to work. Mm-hmm. So when you turn passive voice into active voice, when you ask the question, "Who's doing this stuff?" then you begin to actually get down to the truth. And for anyone who is writing nonfiction, uh, if you're giving advice and you have it in the passive voice, you are doing a disservice to your readers because when they try to follow your instructions, they don't know who's supposed to do what. Mm-hmm. You need uh, the, the sort of the flip side of this, uh, and the author you mentioned might be uh, a fan of this, is uh, to use I and you and we in your nonfiction writing. So you is the reader, and when you're giving advice, you want to say stuff like, um, you know, you should spend half of your time when writing on planning and the other half of your time on writing. Uh, well, now the person reading is like, oh, okay, I see. That's something I have to do. Um, and when you express opinions, why shouldn't you put it in the first person? It's when you eliminate the you and you eliminate the I that you have this thing that floats around in this abstract space. Mm-hmm. And that's just not that useful to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not at all. Do you think, do you think there's, I don't, I don't know if there's a good case for this in nonfiction, but do you think there's ever a time 
or an appropriate place for passive voice. Oh yeah, sure. I'm okay. not. I'm not a uh, a purist about this. Mm-hmm. So uh, sometimes you might be writing about uh, something and the actor doesn't matter, or you want to. You have two sentences, and the first one is about some phenomenon, and then the second uh, one is it's easiest to write without having to bring in uh, the the actor. Mm-hmm. My my point is not to say passive voice is evil. My point is to say. If you write a sentence and it's in the passive voice, ask yourself who is the actor, who's the subject. Mm-hmm. And if if you decide after asking yourself that that the sentence is better without going into that, that that's distracting, okay, that's fine. But once you sensitize yourself to the passive voice, then you you realize how much people use it unconsciously. I can't I can't resist a story here. I had a really good mm-hmm. uh, analyst. Working with me, I was their editor, um, and they were writing uh, a piece, and this was somebody who had a really bad problem with the passive voice. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm reading this draft, and I highlighted the passive voice uh, sentence, and I'm like, this isn't passive. And then the second one I highlighted, and I said, uh, okay, this is passive voice too, and I'm making a new rule. Every time you write a passive voice sentence, you have to slap yourself. <laughs> um, and, and, a little shock and, therapy. Uh, the whole rest of the... The draft, I would just highlight them and write slap. So it's mm-hmm. slap, 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 slap throughout the document. That person will never write in the past <laughs> again. <laughs> once they realized just how pervasive it was in their writing, it was like, oh, okay, okay, I need to catch myself doing this. And then the next step is I need to fix it. And then the next step is next time I write, I'm going to catch myself before I write it. And then at that point, you've eliminated 80 or 90% of it. Yeah, it's a chronic it's a chronic issue because I think so much of a uh, so much of what's out there is written passively. Um, and, you know, we're so used to reading things like that, that you kind of think that's the way stuff should be written. That's and, <laughs> just like what you just said. Exactly. The right. Stuff should be written. But who is writing it? Right. Okay. Exactly. No, I know. Well, I was. Yeah. It's funny. My I, my kids are sensitized. And now I'll say things like. Well, the dishwasher needs to be emptied, and they're like, "Dad, that's in the passive voice." Yeah. I yeah. so I I'm really just interested in getting people to be aware of this. No, I think there needs to be a campaign. I think we need to like run billboards and stuff. I I, I, <laughs> I my original idea for this book was that it was going to be called Passive Evil, and it was going to be exclusively about the way people hide what they're doing with the passive voice. So I realized that was too narrow. Uh-huh. There's a chapter in the book about passive voice that basically is intended to to sensitize people to that so that yeah. they use it. And I got to tell you, so people, when you write in the active voice directly oh, without jargon yeah. and without without uh, um, uh, weasel words, yeah, people read this and they're like, "Oh wow, that's so clear and yep. so bold." You're such a great writer, and in fact, it's just a question mm. of removing all of the defenses and being out there where everybody can see who you are and what you're saying. Now you actually sound like a human being. Absolutely. Yeah. That was a, it was a huge uh, epiphany for me when I first realized that. And, and cause I, I was, you know, I suffered from writing very flowery, using a lot of qualifiers and auxiliary, unnecessary auxiliaries and blah, blah, blah. And I mean, passive and it was, it was ridiculous. And then, and then once I understood that 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 mechanic and then just started making my all of my subjects act and have and 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 not not 
uh, having my subjects ver- verb instead of my verb subject, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it, it changed, it changed everything. It really did. Um, so let's, I, I want to get into some other problems that, that I think, you know, people face today, some bullshitty problems. And, and I think we can highlight some Donald Trump stuff now. I think this is a good moment to jump into that. So I think you have some source material here that maybe we can uh, reference. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I, I've been writing about Donald Trump since he first announced. And his first announcement uh, was dramatically different from every other candidate mm-hmm. because of the fact that he actually said stuff in a direct way that nobody would say. And I, I remember I, hearing a lot of people react to that. Yes. Yeah. And I said, well, wait a minute. This guy is different. And I think that's why people react to him. So the good news is that he actually says what he means or at least that was the case for quite a while. The bad news is that a lot of the stuff he says is completely wrong and made up. So, <laughs> so um, uh, that, you know, the, the, uh, the statements about, you know, all of the, the Mexicans being rapists, yep. you know, that's not actually the truth. So yeah. perhaps we shouldn't be saying this. And I, I think now he has gotten so addicted to just saying whatever's on his mind regardless of, of what level of truth there is, mm-hmm. that it's a problem. Yeah. So, I mean, he, he recently said that he saw thousands of people cheering in New Jersey when the Twin Towers came down. Uh, you know, that never actually happened. So if you say that you saw that, you must be confused. That's the, the generous way to put it, as opposed to trying to fool people. Um, and I, what I've noticed recently is an interesting uh, sort of twist He's saying stuff that he doesn't really want certain collections of people to, to, to know straight out. So, you know, it's like, yeah, we have to keep an eye on Muslims. It's not quite the same as, well, we're going to have a database and every Muslim in America has to sign up. But it's a coded message mm. that, that if you are the kind of person who doesn't trust Muslims, you're like, okay, I, I guess he's going to do that and everyone else can, he can say, well, you know, you put that interpretation on it. I never actually said that. And this is really the first uh, sort of backhanded politicking that I've seen. He's recognized that telling straight out lies and, uh, and making bold statements by themselves is not sufficient. And now he has to send coded messages to people who are, are open to this sort of prejudice. That's interesting. So this is a little different though, right? Because he's not using passive voice. I mean, it's not, there's oh, nothing vague about it. He's oh, being, right. He's no, being he's, extremely active and crisp. Yes. But just I, lying. <laughs> yes. Well, well, it's interesting. So that's the thing is that most politicians, uh, their form of bullshit is to basically uh, uh, obscure what it is that they believe in such a way that you come away thinking, oh, all right, I guess that guy's for me. Um, and Trump is different. He's actually flat out saying things that are false. And this is not that typical. The people, there's not been this level of making stuff up uh, uh, in, the, in this politics before that. Uh, I, I found this interview was on, of all places, Breitbart.com, which is a far, <laughs> far uh, right uh, outlet. But uh, this guy there interviewed Trump about uh, cyber stuff, about mm-hmm. technology. And it's interesting to me that this is full of the same sort of evasions that most politicians have. So, for example, 
Uh, he said, the NSC has been given great latitude in how it conducts itself. Mm. Uh, to the extent that the agency can accomplish its mission without violating the Fourth Amendment, it should be given as much leeway as possible. However, American citizens are guaranteed certain protections. And I thought, this doesn't sound like Donald Trump. What happens is when you actually get him off of his talking points, mm -hmm. in this case, it's about technology, he reverts to the same sort of meaningless mm. evasive blather as any other politician. And I just thought it was worthwhile to highlight the, uh, the, the equivocation and uh, vagueness here. I also think he's much better in, uh, with a, much more effective, I don't know if better is the right word, in, uh, in uh, speech than he is in writing. And so this is a, a, a written interview. Oh, interesting. An, e an email interview. And it's, it's, it just doesn't, if you look at his short, powerful sentences, they just don't seem to work on the page. I wonder if he, he, he doesn't write like he speaks. I wonder if he too is in, has been inflicted with the, this disease of passive voice and thinking that's what sounds good when he reads it, when he writes it, thinking that, you know, he's actually being the active man that he normally is. And, well, and but, well, but his persona just takes over when he's in front of people, right? I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. It's, that could very well be the case. And I think yeah. uh, it's, it's sort of a famous thing that Trump doesn't have any real advisors. He just goes on his own gut. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes this is the kind of thing where somebody might have said, you know, uh, Donald, you don't really want to be doing this, but he's got nobody that, that will say no to him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's true. So, is there is there any, are there any politicians uh, like doing well with this stuff in the in the in the election? Like who are avoiding the vagaries, or uh, uh, or is Trump really the only example? Though he's completely and utterly flawed. Um, I Trump is really the only uh, example that I've seen, and Man, that's amazing. It's, it's unfortunate. Uh, it I, is. I, the it's word so I have for this is batshit candor. You know. He's yeah. He's crazy, but he's telling his version of the truth, and you believe that he actually believes this stuff. Yeah, uh, uh, it's interesting. I'm sure that there are people uh, who've made the parallel of Bernie Sanders from the left to Donald Trump from the right, mm -hmm. and uh, Sanders is definitely more likely to say something that actually means something than uh, than Hillary Clinton is. But if you look at the difficult issues that he writes about. Uh, or talks about, like, for example, um, uh, gun control or a Black Lives Matter movement. Um, if you look carefully, it's the same evasions we see from everybody else. Mm. Uh, it's just that uh, evasion isn't a way of life for him the way it, it is for most of these politicians. So, mm -hmm. you know, to say he's not as bad as the rest of them is about the best statement you can make. <laughs> If people really are interested in politics, if you just go into my blog and type politics into the search box or Donald Trump or, or any of these, these yeah. guys, uh, you can, can find it. Yeah. I think it's a good study in, uh, and just understanding that type of, that type of voice and, and, and avoiding it. <laughs> but speaking of that, like, let's list out some of the main problems writers have when they're, when they, when they have bullshit going on. Um, we said qualifiers, we said passive voice. What are the other things that you, you should try, uh, and fix? Well, I will tell you what's in that writing tips post that got so much play. Um, and there's 10 things in there, but they're all pretty short. Mm -hmm. The most important thing more than anything else is to write shorter. Mm -hmm. So just delete 
everything that you don't need. And it's interesting. The easiest way to do that, most people, when they write, they sort of warm up and then they get into things and then they start writing stuff that means something. Yep. So you just delete the first paragraph. And then if you don't need that, delete the next paragraph and yeah. keep going until you actually get to something that means something. Yes. Um, so shorter is definitely better. Uh, I have a great example in the blog of uh, uh, a guy, Stephen Elop, who uh, was running Nokia when it got acquired by Microsoft. And he needed to lay off 12,500 people. And he sent an email to everybody. And it was an 1,100-word email and the part about laying people off was about 80% of the way in. Mm. It's like, just get to the point. That's what yeah. we all want to know. Right. Uh, uh, shorter sentences, passive voice, uh, weasel words. What are weasel words? So weasel words are any sort of qualifier. Generally, mostly. Very. Rule. Very is the one that people think, well, very makes things stronger. But if I tell you that um, um, I'm, I'm a good writer, is that really any different from being a very good writer? Right. Um, okay. And the thing about weasel words is you just want to delete them and you want to make the strongest statement that you can. Obviously, you can't make a statement that's an absolute statement if it isn't true, uh, right? You can't say uh, all Republicans want to vote for Donald Trump. Obviously, that's not true. Right. But you make, you, you qualify it with something that means something like, right. Like uh, Republicans in uh, in the Northeast are more likely to vote for Trump. Hmm. Um, I, the uh, getting rid of jargon. Jargon is uh, something that infects so much technical and business writing. Um, cite numbers effectively. You can't use a number unless you, it's compared to something. If I say it takes a million uh, pounds of concrete to make a dam, is that you know a lot? Is that more than mm. that compared to what what's in the foundation of a house. Give me mm -hmm. some idea. Uh, relate it. Use the pronouns I, we, and you whenever possible. It would be direct. Um, uh, front load things. Get the key insights up into the front. Cite examples. And then give people some idea of where you're going. Right? First, we're going to tell you this and then that and then this other thing. Signposted. Uh, and uh, there are, uh, let's see here. 189 people have commented on this. It's gotten shared wow. 10,000 times on Facebook. And there are a lot of people who disagree with this stuff that I Yeah, have. absolutely. Sure. But, you know, if I wanted to create writing advice that everybody would agree with, then it would be it right. wimpy stuff about good grammar, and nobody gives a crap about that. No, I, I agree with what you've written, but there's always going to be your troll. <laughs> yes. um, what about adverbs? How, where, do you, where are you on that, fence? I... They mostly suck. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, I agree. No, so I'm with ad you. Adverbs are basically, uh, many of the adverbs are weasel words. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I was looking at a passage recently that had potentially in it uh, or, uh, you know, notably. These, if you, the thing about most adverbs is if you take them out, it either makes things stronger or it doesn't change the meaning at all. Yeah. I think it was Mark Twain who said that you want to change every instance of the word very to damn, and then, <laughs> and then the uh, the copy editor will remove it, and then your writing will be better. Yeah. Uh, so I there are there are certainly places where adverbs can be useful, yeah. but uh, if you get rid of eighty percent of your adverbs, you're you're probably better off. Right. Um, no, I, I and I, and, uh, I you know 
yes, there are exceptions, but most of you aren't JK Rowling. So forget it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think having an abundance of adverbs is, is definitely telling of a, of a problem. I think having an abundance of adjectives can even be a, a problem. I think you want to go with, you want to stick to nouns and verbs, keep it there, find the right one. If you can't, then you probably need to move on to, to an adverb or even an adjective, you know, in, in the, on the other side of that coin. But um, that was also something that was very interesting to me as I was, you know, in my writing journey that because I was all adverb crazy, like, you know, he, he moved glacially, like that's just so <laughs> stupid, <laughs> you know, and um, but you, you just don't realize it because there's so much of it out there. But yeah, just find the, the best concrete noun, the best freaking active verb that you can find and, and make that noun do the verb. You know what I mean? Um, I think that's kind of the best core approach. I, and I think in, um, when I talk about qualifying, you know, give, give me something specific. Mm -hmm. Tell me 70% of the people do this, not most of them. Yeah. Uh, Tell me, uh, that, uh, you know, it's, it's especially prevalent among people in the healthcare industry. Give me some actual facts in place of these generalizations. And then you'll actually, get people saying, oh, I learned something. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. And I want to move on to your book. So your your new book is called, currently, is this tentatively titled? I don't know. Is it, it's writing without bullshit? It's not tentative at all. I made the title. That is, that is can, the title. No, pu- no publisher was allowed to bid on it unless they agreed to the title. So. I, excellent. Uh, I want, and it's that September, 2016 or this year? No, September, 2016. Okay. Uh, publishing takes a long time. So. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I want to talk to you real quick about your publishing strategy because you wrote a really uh, fascinating post on, on your approach to how you, you know, we're going to, going to make this thing, give, give this, give this out to people in the world. Yeah. Um, so go ahead and elaborate on that for me. Okay. So um, I actually have been sort of uh, road testing the most of the content for this on the blog. Uh, I, that's part of the reason why I write so frequently is I'm basically writing the book two pages at a time on the box. That is such a, a great strategy. <laughs> well, it is now I'm, now I'm actually in a position to talk to the publisher who isn't sure they want to have everything out there in, in the world. But you know, that's, that's, I learned a lot by doing that, by looking at what caught on, what didn't catch on, um, and the comments that people made. Yeah, I, I wouldn't worry about that. Those those concerns that the publisher well, has. So, yeah. so I and I knew I wanted to write a book all along. I put together a proposal. Uh, while the proposal was over fifty pages long, it was the easiest proposal I've ever written because when I went to put the sample chapters in, I had already written a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually literally did this. I took all of the blog posts, I put them in a spreadsheet. Uh, I. Uh, assigned them to various topics, and then I sorted it, and then I looked at it and said, "No, oh, that's a book." So, <laughs> so, I, so the table of contents was relatively easy to write because I knew what I wanted to say. Um, and then came a pretty important decision, and I've written about this on my blog: the question of how you publish it. Now, uh, you can self-publish any number of ways. Now, uh, you can certainly easily enough load something up on Amazon and get it on print and print on demand and ebook. Um, uh, and of course I go through traditional publishers and had both positive and not so positive experiences with that. Mm-hmm. So I had to decide, am I going to self-publish? Am I going to, uh, do an ebook? Am I going to, um, do it on Kickstarter? I actually looked into that. Um, or am I going to go with a traditional publisher? But my specific objective is to make this as large as possible. Mm-hmm. So, 
if you think that your market is to sell 25,000 copies, you should probably self-publish because you'll get a higher dollar amount per copy. Mm -hmm. But I'm trying to optimize something different. I want to maximize the chance that I sell 150,000 copies mm -hmm. or 200,000 copies. And that's, that's a real long shot to do if you're self-publishing because you are cutting yourself off from the resources of the, that publishers have. Yeah. Now I looked at a lot of publishers. We actually had 19 publishers bidding on this. We, uh, uh, we sent it out through, um, uh, through, uh, excellent agency. And, uh, um, we, because a lot of them were parts of, of the same companies, we ended up getting six bids that we were looking at. Um, but the company that I selected, uh, turned out that one of the things I liked was that they only publish 18 books a year. This is a uh, Harper business mm. division of, of Harper Collins that, that is focused on sort of uh, big idea business books that make an impact. Uh, they have Gary Vaynerchuk and, uh, um, uh, they actually have Donald Trump as one of their authors. Oh dear. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, so, and I, you know, I had actually worked with that editor at, uh, Harvard Business Press on the first book. So, so it was somebody I trusted that I thought would maximize the chance of this thing succeeding. Um, so that's what I'm trying to do. And if people are just starting out or they think it's, it's uh, more important for them to build their business around the book than it is to, to sell a lot of copies, there are a lot of alternatives out there and maybe traditional publishing isn't the right thing for those people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I wish you the best of luck with that. I think that's that's really exciting. Um, before we wrap, yeah. I I was reading your bio and I saw that you had um, uh, this project called Wellness Campaign. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so I uh, this actually started because uh, I worked with a doctor and a dietitian who put on these wellness groups here in Arlington, Massachusetts, um, and. It's a completely different approach from what you've ever seen because it's all common sense stuff. Everything that they talk about is not fad diets. It's all like advice that you could read in the mainstream press, but they've got basically a system that supports people so people can support each other. Um, uh, and uh, we've run the statistics. The average one of these uh, groups people lose over 15 pounds, which is about the same as it is in any other uh, uh, weight loss program. Mm -hmm. But the difference is that if you look out two, three, four years, and we have the statistics to prove this, you're the uh, most of the people keep most of the weight off, mm -hmm. which is, that's what's, you know, the Weight Watchers business model is basically, you're going to gain the weight back and then you'll be back here again. Right. Um, so really good people, and we started this nonprofit to basically spread the word on that, and we are currently proselytizing other uh, healthcare professionals to see if we can spread that out to, uh, to as many people in Massachusetts and then uh, the world to do that. If people go to wellnesscampaign.org, you'll just see a lot of the materials are just sitting out there, and uh, that's the, we're not quite ready to roll it out, but we're working on that. That's if you awesome. want to see my stuff about writing, they should go to withoutbullshit.com, which is sure. where I have most of the real stuff that I'm doing. Right, 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 right. All right. So what's the one book you would recommend to the budding author 
that that wants to to get better at this stuff? I uh, one book. Um, one book. Well, I uh, besides yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, they can't buy mine yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I think the sense of style by Steven Pinker is a really good. good really okay. Nonfiction authors, I've I'm definitely been pleased with a lot of what's what's in there. Um, and I don't have too much advice for people writing fiction just because mm-hmm. it's not my area of expertise. But one thing I can recommend is that people look at uh, Jane Friedman's blog, uh, which is full of, of fantastic stuff about the publishing industry. The other book I think is terrific is a book called Everybody Writes um, by Anne Handley, which is the, the, the thing I really love about that is it acknowledges that we live in, a, in an electronic world and it's really about all of the kinds of writing people need to do. I've been, been uh, uh, helped a lot by that book. Yeah. It's interesting how there's so much, there's so many differences between writing nonfiction and fiction, but I think that it's becoming such a core, it's becoming such a core part of our communication with just with everybody, just even with through texts and such that just understanding the basics of this stuff is, is it take you and go take you very far, especially, um, See, I, I'm over, I've, I've worked remote for 12 years and, uh, you know, I think one of the reasons why that's been so successful for me is, is because I have tried to get better at communicating via the written word and, um, you know, I, I, I can't emphasize how important that is today, you know, and it's only going to become more important, you know, as we, as we move on. Yeah, your, your pitch letters and your uh, uh, correspondence with the publisher and the agent had better not be bullshit. They'd better actually be the truth. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Well, where can people find out more about you, Josh? Um, definitely go to uh, withoutbullshit.com or if you don't feel like typing bad words into your browser, you can type <laughs> burnoff.com, which goes to the same place. Mm. Um, and uh, really, you you know, just go into the search box and search on whatever topics you're interested in or sign up and uh, uh, we'll email you new fresh content every day and believe me it's got a little bit of attitude and i'm having a lot of fun (laughs) it's great everyone really go there and check it out it is awesome stuff josh thank you so much for appearing on bleeding ink this has been lovely Uh, it's been great to talk with you yeah thank you so much for more episodes and giveaways head over to www.bleedinginc.fm that's www.bleedinginc.fm If you want to help me out even more, you can go check out my book, Modern Rituals, The Wayward Three, on Amazon today. And also, I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm a software guy and I make tools for writers. Check out jslauthor.com. That's for J.S. Leonard, jslauthor.com. There you can sign up for my mailing list, get free tools, and all kinds of awesome stuff. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.